So this morning we finally do begin chapter 2 here in this letter to the Galatians. And overall what we've seen thus far is the Apostle Paul talking about how there's only one true gospel and how he has received that one true gospel directly from Jesus himself. And then last week, if you're here, to finish off chapter 1, we saw Paul tell his own story in order to back all that up. And specifically on that last week, because this will relate to this week, we saw that after his conversion to Christ, Paul is really clear that he didn't go to Jerusalem to see all the other apostles right away. He instead just went about preaching the gospel that he had received from Jesus. And as we said last week, the reason he emphasized that is because he wanted to be really clear for the Galatians and then also for us that the gospel that Paul proclaimed, the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone for the whole entire world, he wanted to be clear that that gospel was true and that it wasn't received from any mere man, but again, was really given to us by Jesus himself. And so that was last week. But that finally leads us to hear what we'll see this week in chapter 2. Because here we'll see, as you just heard, Paul continue his story. But now he is going to tell us about when he finally did go to Jerusalem to meet with all the other apostles. And how that meeting went. And so that's what we'll see this morning. What happened at that meeting and why it's important. Why it was important for the truth of the gospel back then. And why it's still important for us as people who believe Jesus' gospel today. That leads us to an outline of how we will go through our time this morning. So we will go really verse by verse through our passage together here. But as we do so, we're going to have two overarching questions. Two overarching questions. And first, we'll ask, what was going on and what was at stake in the gospel message that even led to this meeting happening? Meaning, what was the background to why this gospel meeting happened? That will be the first half, verses 1 through 5. And then second, we'll ask, and what then did Paul and all the other apostles agree on in response to what was happening? And that will be verses 6 through 10. And so in sum, first, what was going on that led to the meeting? And then second, what was the apostolic response to what was going on? And so those will be our questions. And we will ask them that way, because for us, we'll see that what was going on back then with the gospel message still often goes on today. And we'll see that the response the apostles gave 2,000 years ago in this meeting still is really important for you and I this morning. So all that said, let's then begin our first section. Again, we're asking what was going on, what was at stake in the gospel message that led to this meeting we're about to read about. For this, we will be in verses 1 through 5, but we'll start with just verses 1 and 2 as there's sort of an introduction to this story. So look down your Bibles, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So as you can see in verse 1, this is 14 years later which means that Paul has been preaching this gospel for around 17 years. And he's going up to Jerusalem again, which is where all the apostles are, and he's taking Barnabas and Titus. And then in verse 2, Paul makes it clear that he went not because some other mere person asked him to go, 
but because of a revelation. And this shows us that, yes, this meeting happened because something was going on, and we're going to see what that was in verses 3 through 5. But in terms of what specifically led Paul to go to Jerusalem, Paul says it was Jesus that revealed to him that he needed to go. And then, still in verse 2, he makes it plain that what he basically did at that meeting is he set before them, meaning the Jerusalem church and all the influential apostles, the gospel that he proclaims. And then finally, to finish off verse 2, why did he do this? Well, as he says, quote, in order to make sure that it wasn't running or had run in vain. And that sounds a little strange because at first, it can make it sound like he's going up there because he's unsure if he's been preaching the true gospels for 17 years. (laughs) But we know from Galatians here and we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that that's definitely not the case. Instead, this running in vain language points to the fact that something was happening that could hinder the gospel work that he had been doing. And so that's the introduction to what we're about to read about. Paul went up to Jerusalem because Jesus revealed to him he should go, and he put before the church in Jerusalem and all the apostles the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, all, and it was all because something was going on that put a lot of gospel work at rest. Which then leads us to verses 3 through 5. And here, we will see in more detail what it was that was going on and really what was at stake in all of this. But we'll start with just now again, verse, or verse 3. So look down your Bibles, just verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So as to what was going on, notice the topic that Paul brings up now in verse 3. Right? The issue of circumcision. And as you might know, this was one of the big issues in the early church. And it was part of the false gospel that was going on here in Galatia, which is probably why Paul is mentioning it. Because in basic, if you remember, for the Jews in the Old Testament, it's very clear that one of the key aspects of the covenant that God made with them was this sign of circumcision. Meaning every male in Israel was to be circumcised as a sign, a symbol that they were in a relationship with the Lord. And so in the early church, when most Christians were Jewish at the beginning, a key question was, do people need to obey certain Jewish things, especially like circumcision, to be saved by this Messiah, Jesus Christ? Right? And the answer in the true gospel from all the apostles was a definitive No, because salvation is available to all nations, as we're going to see later in this passage, and it's available by grace through faith alone in Jesus. And therefore, to make all the Gentiles essentially become ceremonial Jews was not true to the gospel message of Jesus. But all that said, that's then why in verse 3 here, Paul brings up circumcision. And you see, though, especially though, specifically he says of Titus, that Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Which shows that he and all the apostles and the church in Jerusalem all agreed with the fact that circumcision was not necessary or anything Jewish like that for salvation. But that now leads to verse 4. And here is where we're going to see some strong words. And we'll finally get more clarity on what it was that was going on what was at stake, and why this really matters even for us. So look down now, verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in 
to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. We'll stop there in the middle of the sentence. But as you can hear, we're starting that verse with the word yet. This verse now is talking about how these false brothers tried to contradict the fact that Titus didn't need to be circumcised. Meaning these brothers came in and what they were doing is they were basically claiming that you needed to be circumcised to be a believer in Jesus. And in Galatia, again, that was part of the false gospel that they were teaching. These Galatian teachers were essentially saying that you needed to believe in Jesus plus do all of these Jewish rites like circumcision or obeying Jewish festivals and such. And so how did Paul and all the other apostles who were Jewish themselves respond to that? And as for us, how should we, in a sense, respond to any adding of the gospel like that? Well, that's where the rest of verse 4 comes in. Because there we see that when Paul really analyzed what was going on, when someone added to the gospel like that, he uses the imagery of a war with the ultimate issue being the difference between having freedom versus living in slavery. And I say he uses the imagery of a war because notice these are false brothers, meaning they weren't just deceived brothers, but they're people who are actually not brothers, not on Jesus' side. But even more clear on this idea, uh, imagery of war, notice those phrases there, slipped in and spy out. Because literally that word for slipped in was a military word that meant to infiltrate. And then that word to spy out had the connotation of a spy entering into enemy territory. And so that's what Paul is saying about what's going on with these false brothers. They were infiltrating, spying out, trying to change the gospel message. And so that's the imagery of a war. But even more important than just that in verse 4 is what Paul says is at stake in all of this. So these brothers were infiltrating, changing the message. But notice specifically what were they spying out and trying to do? They infiltrated to, quote, spy out our freedom we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery. <laughs> and those are strong words. But you can see it for yourself then. The issue, according to the inspired Apostle Paul, according to our God and all this talk about adding to the gospel was and it still is living in freedom versus living in slavery. The true gospel brings freedom while any adding to the gospel does lead to more enslavement in your life. And it's on those two topics that we'll stop now for a minute and just think about what, what Paul is saying. And these will, these will come up over and over in this letter to Galatians, these topics. So this isn't the last time we'll see them, but it's good for us to take a minute and ask why Paul uses these ideas here. Right? And what they mean for us as believers in the gospel. So as for freedom, as we've probably heard, part of the Christian gospel is that we are free in Christ. Right? And we know that from famous verses like Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Or Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. And so we know that this idea of freedom is a big part of the Christian message of the Christian gospel. And yet we still might ask, but what does that even mean to be free in Christ? 
And it's a good question to ask because we as Christians, right, always have to be careful to not just use Christian buzzwords, but it's much more important to figure out what they actually mean for us in reality in our lives. And so again, the question is, what is our freedom in Christ? A freedom that the Bible here thinks is at stake if we add to the gospel message. Well, if we were to break it down, our freedom in Christ includes, includes two aspects, two aspects. And both of these were at stake in what these false brothers were teaching. And they're often at stake in false Christian teachings today. First, this idea of our freedom in Christ then includes the freedom of how we are saved in the gospel. Of how we're saved in the gospel. Meaning, in Christ, we're totally free from needing to earn or do anything to get our okayness. We're, we're free from having to make up for all of our wrongs and sins and find our own peace. Instead, we simply trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And this aspect of freedom may seem less important to some of us, especially because in our current culture, we're mo- more prone to take salvation for granted. Right? But imagine someone caught up in excessive guilt. Or, or think of someone who believes that they can't really have much peace or hope unless they're good enough. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you feel just like that. Right? So burdened with your past and your mistakes that you think there's no hope. Now, almost all other religions or worldviews would say, well, you are a sinner. Or, yeah, you have made a lot of mistakes. And so... Yeah, you need to now do your best to make up for all of that. But the gospel of Jesus was and still is a gospel of freedom because it has always said, you cannot make up for all of that. We're all sinners. We're all failures. But, But you don't need to do anything to earn your own salvation or find your own peace. You're free from that unfulfillable burden. Instead, Jesus did what you need for you. You are loved. And so don't try to do it yourself. Rather, just accept Jesus and what he has done in your place. And so that is the first meeting of freedom in Christ. It is a freedom in the gospel where we are no longer enslaved to live a life where we're trying to make and earn our own peace and hope and salvation. Instead, we have freedom in Christ. That then leads to the second aspect of our freedom in Christ. And it's this aspect that we in our culture usually talk about when we use the word freedom. And if the first freedom is about how we have salvation and peace freely in Jesus alone, now the second aspect of freedom is about the way we then live in freedom. And all this really means is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we now know that if we want to live a life of freedom, meaning a life that isn't enslaved, enslaved to selfishness, to, to sin, to the whims of our culture, enslaved to just our desires, or enslaved to anything else, we know if we want to live that life of freedom, the answer is found in Christ and following the way Jesus tells us to live. That's true freedom. And yet hearing that, perhaps many of us, and especially many in our culture, 
would respond to that by saying, but that's not freedom. Because freedom is doing whatever you want to do. But if you think about it, even really quickly, you'll see that that is a major misunderstanding of this idea of freedom. Think about this with me, because freedom is never just having no rules, because we all follow some sort of guidelines for ourselves, and because just for a second, imagine you really lived by no rules at all and just followed your own impulses. If you did that, we all know we wouldn't be free. Instead, we'd be enslaved to a lot of mistakes. Regret, guilt, shame, confusion, and more. And moreover, we wouldn't develop love or deep relationships or have much peace. And so so honestly, the idea that's so common that freedom equals doing whatever I want is just a bit naive considering how our lives work. Instead, the real question we're all asking about freedom is, how can I live my life in such a way where I really have the most and live in the most freedom, meaning the most peace and non-enslavement in the way I was meant to live in this world? And again, the answer to that is in Jesus. Meaning finding forgiveness in Him, having a relationship with Him, following for Him, living for Him and His glory and not your own. Now on that, that doesn't mean as we do that, we won't mess up as we seek to follow him. Of course we do. But the good news is that that's even included in our following Jesus and having freedom. Because when we do mess up, we know that Jesus is there for us and ready to forgive us whenever we come to him and we can have peace. But all that said, the point then is that following Jesus is the most freeing way to live in this world. Or think of it this way, like, like a bird freely flying in the air or like a fish freely living in the water. So we as human beings are the most free when we are following our God, Jesus, in his world. A fish that decides to try to live a life on land wouldn't be free. It'd be choked, hindered, enslaved, not able to live as it was meant to live. And so it is for us. We are made to live here in freedom by knowing and loving and following Jesus Christ. But those then are our two aspects of our freedom in Christ. But that now brings us back here to verse 4 and why this false gospel was such a big deal and why any sort of similar false gospel is a big deal today as well. And to see this, think about it this way. So if if true freedom is knowing that you're saved and have peace in Christ alone, you don't have to earn it all. And if true freedom is then following Jesus above all else and what he tells us, because that's what gives us peace, because anything else will add to lead to more enslavement. If those are true, then think about it. What happens when someone does add to Jesus in the gospel? What happens is more enslavement. And it's enslavement in both of our aspects that we talked about of our freedom. Because first, if someone adds to the gospel and says something like, you must be circumcised or you must follow the law of Moses to be saved, or more prominent today, you must make sure you go to church this much or give this much or pray this much or be this type of person or be this good to be on God's side. Ask yourself, what ultimately happens to those who hear that type of message? 
Well, they're cut off from the first aspect of being freely saved in the gospel of Christ. Because once again, by believing any of that, they become enslaved to trying to make up for their wrongs and sort of earn their way to God. And so that's the first reason why any false teaching that adds to the gospel will lead to more enslavement. But then second, this is also true when it comes to the second aspect of our living in freedom once we are saved. And it's here that we have to realize in Galatians 2 here, these false brothers weren't just saying you needed to be circumcised to be saved. But along with that, they also taught that Christians should then also follow the entire law of Moses. But this was a big deal because it now messed up with that second aspect of how we live in freedom in Christ. Right? Because now, instead of just following Jesus' ways, this would burden and enslave people with the Old Testament Jewish law. And so once again, the point is that adding anything to our faith or to the gospel takes away from our Christian freedom because the freest way to live is in Christ and following Christ and not following things we or any other mere person has to say, but following Christ. And so all that said, that's then what's at stake there in verse 4, freedom versus enslavement. And really quickly, just to make this crystal clear, This is also what's at stake today whenever anyone adds to the Bible's view of how we're saved or of how we must live. Because once we add to how we're saved, making it Jesus plus, then we enter into more slavery trying to earn our way to God. And also, once we add anything to Jesus' way to how we must live, like needing to follow certain moral rules that aren't in your Bible, then we put burdens on ourselves and on others that God never intended, which is what the Pharisees did all the time. And by doing that, we don't guide ourselves or others into more freedom that we have as Christians. Instead, it also enslaves because it burdens us with things that God never commanded. Which finally leads to why Paul said what he said in verse 5. Let's look down at your Bibles, verse 5. To them, to these false brothers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here we see how the Apostle Paul responded to these people who tried to add to the gospel, say you must live by the law. He says clearly we did not yield in submission to them even for a moment. Meaning he and all the other apostles were firm about the importance of not adding to the gospel or Jesus like this. And why were they firm? Quote, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So that the preciousness of this gospel and this gospel freedom might be preserved, kept, protected for the Galatian churches back then and also for us today. But that's in our first section. And we answered what was going on, what was at stake in the gospel message that led to this meeting happening. And these these brothers, false brothers, were trying to add to the gospel message, add to Jesus, and what was at stake as they were doing that. And what's at stake today, if anyone ever does that, is our experience, freedom versus enslavement. And so one last time, just to really bring this home, this means that if we want to experience true freedom, And if we love others and want them to have freedom, 
It really is found in this gospel of Jesus Christ and following him. And it's us making sure that we don't ever add to the gospel or add to what Jesus wants for us. That brings us to our second section. And here we'll now ask, and what did Paul and all the, all the other apostles say in response to all of this? And for this, we're going to be in the rest of verses 6 through 10. And here we'll see two major things they agreed on with one minor agreement. And all these agreements will still apply to us. But to begin, we'll start then in just verse 6, because here we'll see the first major thing they agreed on in response to what was going on. So Galatians 2, 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So as a quick side note, as for this whole influential and not influential talk, people debate exactly why Paul is saying talking like that, but it seems that on the one hand, like back in verse 2, he knows that certain people are influential, right? Meaning the Jerusalem apostles. And he'll even say in verse 9 coming up that they are pillars of the church. But then on the other hand, with this idea of God showing no partiality, he seems to be making the point over and over that at the end of the day, it's not mere men that are most important, but it's, it's God. But that being said, what is it that they agreed on here in verse 6? Well, notice that ending. And really, this in some ways is the most important part of our whole paragraph this morning. He says, they, quote, added nothing to me. In other words, after this meeting about the gospel in this sort of setting, all the other apostles added nothing to Paul and the gospel that he was proclaiming. And I think he says it this way, as you can see that they added nothing Because in essence, as we just talked about, that's what most false teaching does. It adds something to the message of Jesus. Maybe it's something about how to be saved. Or maybe it's something big about how the best way to live is. Or maybe it's both. But either way, we should realize, and we talked about this, I think, two weeks ago on the same topic of false teaching. We should realize that primarily false messages about Jesus don't take things away. They usually still hold that Jesus is the Son of God who came, lived, died, rose, and that we should believe in Him. Instead, what makes them false and what makes them enslaving rather than resulting in our Christian freedom is the stuff that's added to them. And so here in verse 6, Paul brings this gospel of salvation by grace alone and Christ alone to the whole, uh, for faith alone to the whole world, to the Jerusalem church and the apostles And first and most important, they looked at it and they added nothing to that. Saying that it's the true, one true gospel. So that's the first major thing they agreed on. That only is the second major thing they agreed on. This will be in verses 7 through 9. And to be honest, as you're about to hear, this is part of one long sentence in the original Greek. And the ESV does a good job trying to keep it one sentence here. But it can sound a little confusing, but even so, as you read it, I think you'll see Paul's point. So this is verses 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for the minds of the Gentiles, 
And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So, so what did Paul and the apostles agree on here? Well, even though it's a long sentence, I think you can see the point that they agreed that although there's only one true gospel, still in God's providence, Peter was specifically entrusted to proclaim that gospel to the Jews, the circumcised, while Paul was entrusted to go proclaim that gospel to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. And so what they agreed on is that although there's only one true gospel in God's providence, there can be individuals having different emphases on who they go to and proclaim this gospel to. Right? And that's still the case for us as God's people today. But that being said, the reason I kept saying there that this was, this was something they saw in God's providence is because really when you look at these verses, the subtle emphasis here isn't just that Peter went to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. Of course that's true, but there's actually something deeper going on. And that's how Paul makes it really clear that it was God who had this plan to reach the Jews and the Gentiles. And it was God who was accomplishing this plan through Peter and Paul. And we know this because first, notice verse 7, where Paul is very clear to say that the apostles saw... They witnessed the truth, saw that Peter and Paul had both been entrusted with the gospel. They didn't do the entrusting. And if you're curious, in Bible study terms, if this is helpful, this verb form here for had been entrusted is often called a divine passive verb, a divine passive. I think this will help because these occur all over the Bible. And all that means, brings you back to elementary school, right? All that means is this is a passive verb meaning a verb where the action is being done to somebody, but it isn't clear who is doing the verb, right? Like, who is doing the entrusting here? And so what makes people call this type of verb a divine passive is that in the Old Testament, the New Testament, these verbs occur all over the place when it's assumed that God is the one doing the verb, if that makes sense. But anyways, that's clear what's going on here. Because the apostles saw that Peter and Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. And so who's initiating this? Who's doing the entrusting to set this all up? God. And so God was behind Peter and Paul's gospel ministries. But God's activity in all this is even more stunning in that verse 8 there. So it's a big There, Paul makes it crystal clear who really was preaching the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. And who was it? Notice this for yourself. It's strange sounding, but it's clear. Quote, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. All right, so both Peter and Paul were apostles and they both had apostolic ministries to go proclaim the gospel. And yet behind and in all that, what was really going on? He was working through them. God was working to proclaim the gospel. And that's then why, to address that verse 9 really quickly, it's why the three pillars in the Jerusalem church, right, James, Peter, and John, gave the right hand of fellowship, which just symbolized friendship and agreement to Barnabas and Paul. Because they saw that this was God's doing, God's grace. And so they agreed that Paul and Barnabas were to keep going and proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, which is what they did. 
It's not for us on hearing all that. We could spend a, a long time applying what all that means, but in brief, I hope we really know that this has always been a big part of God's plan for the one true gospel. Meaning it's always been God's heart and God's very doing Himself to reach the Jews and all nations with this gospel message. And, and I know we might know that, but I hope you're seeing here, even in that one verse, that God not only wants that, but He's the one ultimately accomplishing that. And that's really a big application of these verses here because I hope you know that the word Gentiles in Greek is literally just the same exact word as nations, ethne. And so when God works through Peter to go to the Jews, to go to the Jews and when God works through Paul to reach the Gentiles, literally God is the one reaching the nations. <laughs> and that being the case, for us then first, we should be really thankful for that. I'm really thankful because most, if not all of us here this morning, are Gentiles. Right? And so praise God that He has reached the people of the nations, Gentiles like us. But then also, second, hearing a text like this should, should really remind us that, that above all else that's going on in our lives, in our culture, in politics, in the world at large, and especially these days and weeks, there's a lot going on, and we as Christians should absolutely pray and care. Still, when we read a text like this, we should be reminded that above all that, what God's ultimate plan for the world always has been, and what He cares most about, and what He's doing, is He is aiming to reach the nations with this global gospel of Jesus Christ. He worked through Peter and Paul to do that. And he's still working through us, God's people, now to accomplish that. That finally leads us to the last and minor thing that they agreed on in this meeting. And for this, we'll be in verse 10. And I say that this is minor compared to the two major agreements we just talked about simply because of that first word you can see there that Paul starts verse 10 with. It's that word that the ESV translates as only. Because that's an intentional word, and it's a word that shows that this final thing is connected, and yet it's different from everything before. So basically, Paul is saying that this last thing wasn't what the meeting was about, nor was it a primary issue, but it's still something important that they all agreed on. So what was it? Let's finish our paragraph first time. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So you can see that they agreed on this. Right? They said, remember the poor, and Paul said in response, I'm eager to do that. So that's the final thing that they agreed on. But now, concerning what this actually means, and what this means for us, it's actually, maybe to your surprise, a little harder than you first think. And I say that because it's a lot harder than I first thought when I first started studying this this week. Because there's actually two options, really two options on what this verse means. And I'll be honest, I, I don't know which one is right meaning which one God intended. Yet both of them will apply to us from elsewhere in the Bible, so we'll talk about both of them. But in terms then of what this remember the poor means, first and most obvious, this could mean that the apostles are asking Paul to care for the physically poor at large as he goes about and preaches the gospel. And this we know was definitely part of Jesus' heart and ministry, caring for the poor 
the needy, and the outcast. In the Old Testament, this is clearly God's heart as well. And so that's the first thing this could mean. And on the surface, that makes a lot of sense. And to be honest, I have never read this verse without thinking of it that way. And that's a good thing for us to apply to ourselves. But then second, what this remember the poor could instead mean, and a lot more, I was surprised, recent Bible scholars, because of more historical background information that we now have, take this second stance. It could mean that what the apostles are asking Paul to do here in verse 10 is to still keep remembering the Jerusalem Jewish Christians as he went now and proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles. And I know, at first that sounds really strange. But the reason, the reason why many Bible scholars now think this is the case is because we now know that many of the early Jewish Jerusalem Christians didn't just call themselves Christians or primarily the way, but we now know that they often sometimes called themselves the poor, with a capital P, if you will which they chose because it closely represented humility and Jesus' first beatitude about being poor in spirit. And we also know that many of those Jewish Jerusalem Christians were actually physically poor. And so all that being said, it could mean that only remember the poor does mean keep remembering us Jewish Christians as you now go and preach to the Gentiles. As you hear that, many people do take that, first op- that, that option because while the first option is the simplest reading, it's this option that does make a lot more sense of the context because they're telling Paul to go remember Jewish Christians as he goes and now preaches to the Gentiles in verse 9. But all that being said, which one is right? Meaning, let's remember the poor in general or remember specifically Jewish Christians or Christians all over the world, I'm not sure. But as I said, I do think both apply to us. Because really, after all that, to really now bring verse 10 home, really why this verse is so helpful, especially as we now conclude our message, is because after everything about the gospel in this passage, right, and and about making sure we don't add to Jesus and, and about preserving the true gospel, now this verse reminds us, yes, stick up for the true gospel, and yes, spread that gospel to the nation, but also, as you do so, really love people. First, remember and love those who are physically poor and needy, like our Savior Jesus did. And so that really should be something that we Christians look out for and do more. But then also, second, remember and love your brothers and sisters all over the world, your fellow poor and spirit believers as well. And again, as for which one is the right meaning and application of Galatians 1 verse 10 here, I don't know. But we all could benefit to hear the call to remember the poor and to, keep in, to continually keep in mind and pray for our fellow poor in spirit brothers and sisters all over the world. All that said, church, that's then our passage here in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. And as with so many other passages thus far in Galatians, really, we once again saw that the overall point of our passage is the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, the importance of preserving that gospel, to not add to it, to not change it, because our freedom versus our enslavement is at stake, and because this is God's global message that he is using to reach the nations for Jesus. And so as we leave here this morning, let's do that. Let's, let's continue to be people a church who who loves Jesus and who preserve and spread this precious global gospel. 
for the sake of our freedom and peace and for the sake of the freedom and peace of people all over the world.